Yarin bu kadar cevri gelir miydi hayale? Ah, aman aman. Assalamu alaikum. Or in English, peace be upon you. Welcome to the special episode of the Harrison Podcast, where we take a journey across the ocean and delve into U.S. foreign relations as we explore early U.S. diplomacy in the Middle East. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. I will be joined for a segment of the show by Lynn Perkins, the host of the History of the Ottoman Empire podcast, who will enlighten us as to contemporary conditions in the Ottoman Empire around the time of Harrison's presidency. To start our journey today, let's begin with a look at the man who would ultimately serve as our diplomatic representative to that part of the world. Our minister to the Ottoman Empire at the time of Harrison's brief presidency is a rather interesting character in and of himself. David Porter was born on February 1, 1780 in Boston, Massachusetts to a family with a naval tradition. His grandfather had been a captain in the Merchant Marine and his father had served under Captain John Barry on the American side in the Revolution, but was captured by the British and forced, quote, to watch his brother and fellow prisoner die during this period of captivity. Despite this family tragedy, Porter would go on to join the U.S. Navy, receiving his first commission in April 1798 and being posted to the USS Constellation. His early career would soon find him in the part of the world in which he would end his career and his life as his ship was dispatched as part of a squadron set patrol in the Mediterranean. As noted by Porter's biographer David Long, the states known as the Barbary states, quote, Morocco, Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli, tended to act as independent states, though they were all dependencies of, and usually paid tribute to, the Ottoman Empire. For many years, they had lived mainly by operating a rather simple but effective protection racket. Unless a Christian maritime nation paid regular tribute, its ships were attacked and its sailors imprisoned and chill ransomed. The young United States at first sought peaceful means, including paying tribute, in order to allow them to expand their trade into the Mediterranean region. Even John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, while serving as diplomats in Europe, worked on the issue. However, the problem was twofold. The cost was often prohibitive for a nation still trying to become financially solvent and the situation was embarrassing. It was bad enough that Americans were pushed around by Britain and France, but, as explained by a U.S. naval captain to the Secretary of the Navy, quote, did the United States know the easy access of this barbarous coast called Barbary, the weakness of their garrisons, and the effeminacy of their people? I'm sure they would not be long tributary to so pitiful a race of infidels. It was around this time that Tripoli declared war on the U.S., and then President Jefferson ordered the squadron, including the young porter, to the Mediterranean. We don't have time to go through the ins and outs of the Barbary Wars in this episode, but it is a fascinating period for those interested in naval military history. I recommend Frank Lambert's The Barbary Wars, American Independence, and the Atlantic World for further reading on the subject. For Porter, his posting to the USS Philadelphia at the time resulted in his and his fellow shipmates being captured off of Tripoli Harbor and spending just over 19 months in captivity. When Porter was released, he was given command of the USS Enterprise and was praised by the U.S. Consul in Marseille in a letter to Jefferson, with the Consul writing, quote, Mr. Porter is a very good and gallant officer, much esteemed here, where the good order, cleanliness of his ship, Subordination and good health of his crew is admired, and we are intimate friends. 
After his return to the United States, Porter was assigned to the Naval Station in New Orleans for a couple of years before being assigned to command the USS Essex as the drumbeat of war was growing ever closer. The Essex, as with the majority of the U.S. Navy deployed during the War of 1812, was engaged in a primarily economic war against Britain. This was a quite different war than the one being fought by Harrison on land, as we have previously discussed. The British Navy was known as being the best in the world, so it wasn't initially felt that the American Navy could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. However, they could attack merchant ships and ships carrying specie and hit the British in the pocketbook, as well as protect U.S. shipping. Funny enough, some of the most decisive American victories in the war took place on the high seas. The Essex would journey extensively through the Atlantic, through the Cape Verde Islands, and the eastern coast of South America before rounding Cape Horn and going into the Pacific Ocean in early 1813. The Essex would journey over to the Marquesas Islands, where Porter unsuccessfully attempted to annex the island of Nukahiva into the United States and the Galapagos Islands before finally being forced to surrender to the British on March 28, 1814, after suffering heavy casualties in the Battle of Valparaiso. Porter would return home after this and would be waiting to take command of a new USS Essex when he received word while in New York City of the British attack on Washington, D.C. While on the way to the scene, he would learn that the new Essex had been burned by the British, and with that, Porter would not return to command of a ship before news arrived of the Treaty of Ghent and peace between the U.S. and Britain. Though proposing to President Madison that he undertake an expedition to Japan to open trade with that nation, a mission which ultimately wouldn't occur until nearly a decade after his death, Porter assumed office as one of the first three members of the Board of Navy Commissioners a body which had been created in order to better manage operational planning for that military branch. He would remain in this position from 1815 until the end of 1822, when he was given command of the West India Squadron. It was during this service in the Caribbean region that Porter got himself into an international incident sort of a pickle. A subordinate reported to Porter of his being arrested in Fajardo, Puerto Rico, while investigating the theft of goods from an American-owned mercantile store. In what was not the most subtle action of his career, Porter promptly took his ships and 200 armed men and landed at Fajardo. While he did depart after three hours, the fact that Puerto Rico was at the time a Spanish colony did not bode well for Porter. President Monroe and his cabinet decided to recall Porter, and after some tense exchanges with administration officials, he was court-martialed and found guilty on two charges. However, his sentence was a light one a six-month suspension from the Navy with full pay and allowances. This may have satisfied most men, but not Porter. Instead, he resigned his commission and took up command as head of the Mexican Navy. That's right, rather than take his lumps, Porter hopped the border and signed on with a foreign nation despite his, quote, abysmal ignorance of the Spanish language and the Mexican temperament. You can imagine where this is going. The Mexican Navy at the time consisted of four larger ships, as well as some smaller craft, and Porter struggled with finances during his tenure. Furthermore, he created another diplomatic incident, this time with his native land, the United States, when he sailed on a Mexican naval ship to Key West. His biographer sums up the issues with his time at Key West as follows, quote, First, he violated U.S. territorial rights by his presence at Key West. Second, he threatened American commerce by announcing the issuance of letters of mark for Mexican privateers and granting at least one. And third, 
he recruited sailors from Mexico on U.S. soil. After suffering financial losses and personal tragedy, Porter resigned this commission in September 1829 and secretly boarded a ship back to the U.S. With now two naval careers ended due to embarrassing international incidents, what was Porter to do now? Why, become a diplomat, of course. As Porter is getting ready for his new post, this seems like a good time to bring Lynn in to discuss the state of the Ottoman Empire at the time. Mahaba, Jerry, and to all the listeners of the Harrison Podcast. My name is Lynn Perkins of the History of the Ottoman Empire Podcast. First, I would like to thank Jerry for the opportunity to come on his show and talk about the Ottoman Empire during the time of the ninth president of the United States, which, as all of you listeners know, is William Henry Harrison. It was in 1831, only ten years before Harrison's brief presidency, that official diplomatic relations between the Ottomans and the U.S. were formally established. But that is getting ahead of the story. To give a complete picture, we have to go back to the revolutionary period of the U.S. in 1774 to give us a complete picture of the empire at the time of Harrison. On my podcast, it's the year 1481, and the Ottomans are on the rise, rarely losing a battle, and in the process of building a vast, multicultural empire. But fast-forwarding to 1774, and spoiler alert to any of my listeners who are checking this out, the empire has seen much better days. I hesitate to say the Ottomans were in a state of decline, for many modern historians argue that the major reforms that the sultans were pushing through were progressive, and if they had not met with so much resistance by the religious and military elite, along with the major landholders, that the Ottomans might have been able to adapt to the modern era, and we could be talking about them in the present tense and not the past. But the sultans did meet with this resistance, and that, coupled with the loss of territory due to defeats from the growing powers in Europe and Russia, and the growing nationalistic spirit spreading throughout Ottoman lands, the empire was in a constant state of crisis. In 1774, two years before the United States declared its own independence, the Ottomans were forced to sign the Treaty of Kuchuk Kunadra, which forced the Ottomans to cede Crimea to Russia and allow them passage through the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. This allowed Russia the right to have their war and shipping vessels pass straight through Istanbul, the Ottoman imperial capital, which lies on the Bosphorus. The Russians also received the right to represent the Greek Orthodox citizens of the Ottoman Empire in all legal matters. In 1789, Sultan Selim III began his reign and would be the first to try and bring about the changes that would one day be known as the Tanzimat reforms. Selim concentrated on the Ottoman military, wanting to modernize it and put a stop to the constant defeats which were inflicted on Ottoman forces. The once feared Janissary forces were now outdated, refusing to adapt to change and unwilling to update their training and tactics, preferring the old methods which had won them success in the past. When Selim III introduced the Nazim e Jadid, or the New Order Army, in 1797, it was quickly denounced by both the Janissary Corps and the Ulma, or religious hierarchy. But this brewing conflict between the Sultan 
and the religious and military leadership was quickly overshadowed by the invasion of Egypt by Napoleon of France in 1798. It took a joint British-Ottoman force to recapture Egypt in 1801, with Mehmed Ali leading the Ottoman forces. In another unfortunate event for the Ottomans, Mehmed, seeing himself in a position to leverage his own power, took control of Egypt for himself in 1805. And just to add further to the tension Selim was forced to deal with, hostilities once again flared up with Russia in 1806. With these series of losses and the unpopularity of his new order army, Selim III was forced out of power in 1806 due to Janissary revolts and was replaced by Mustafa II, who would only rule for a little over a year himself. Mustafa was disposed and executed in July 1808, but not before ordering the execution of Selim, leaving only his half-brother, Mahmud, as the last surviving member of the House of Osman to take power. Sultan Mahmud II was most responsible for paving the way for the before-mentioned Tanzimat reforms that his successor would institute soon after taking power. Mahmud secured the throne after a coup led by Ahmadar Mustafa Pasha, also known as Barak Kadar. In order to bring back the reforms brought on by Mahmud's cousin, Selim III, the precursor to the Tanzimat was the document known as the Deed of Agreement. This was created after a conference between the Sultan, his de facto Grand Vizier, Barakadar, and the Ayan, or local nobility. This document sought to restrict the authority of the Sultan while maintaining the interest of the Ayan and reviving the New Order Army. This again was met with revolt from the Janissaries, but this revolt was put down and the reforms were given the chance to take root. The Janissaries were ultimately put down for good in 1826 after the Sultan ordered a violent crackdown after another revolt which led to most of the Janissary forces killed or imprisoned. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the empire, the Ottoman navy was losing out to a combined British, French, and Russian conflict over the status of Greece, which was ultimately concluded with Greece gaining their independence and the Ottomans losing the bulk of their navy. This loss forced the Ottomans to declare war on the Russians in 1828 with the objective of getting military assistance in the ensuing peace treaty. The Russians marched all the way to the former imperial capital of Edirne before peace could be agreed upon. The Ottomans were obligated to formally recognize Greek independence, cede territory along the Danube and the Caucasus, and pay a heavy war indemnity to the Russians. This protection was called upon not long after the ink had dried, for in 1832, Mehmed Ali invaded Anatolia in hopes of gaining control of Syria and the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. After coming within miles of Istanbul itself, Mehmed was reluctant to take on the Russians and agreed to peace with the Sultan, who was forced to give control of Syria to Mehmed. It was about this time that the great powers of France, Britain, and Russia began to recognize that maintaining the Ottoman state and its remaining territory was much more favorable than a strong Egypt taking control, or worse yet, any of the other great powers getting too much ground in upsetting the tenuous balance of power currently in place between the three of them. And with that, the Eastern problem was born. 
Mahmoud II never had the chance to regain control of Syria and the Greater Levant, but he eventually was responsible for reforms, which included the reinforcement of the permanent embassies, sending students to western capitals, the creation of a quarantine system, and of a modern postal service, along with the opening of a medical school and of a military cadet school. These and other reforms laid the groundwork for a modern, centralized, bureaucratic, and rational state. The creation of the Supreme Council of Judicial Ordinances in March of 1838 and the abolition of the arbitrary practice of the confiscation of the property of the deceased high functionary singled the advent of the principle of guarantee of life, honor, and property in the Western sense. Mahmoud's strong adherence to Orthodox Islam was also a motivating source, reconciling Islamic principles of law and justice with the Western principles of ideal state and society. The Sultan made every effort to secure the cooperation of the Ummah with his reforms. At the same time, Mahmoud's subjects, both Muslim and non-Muslim, suffered greatly because of his centralizing policies. Hundreds of thousands of Turkish conscripts died of epidemics in the military barracks without firing a single shot, while thousands more died trying to suppress revolts in the Peloponnese, Serbia, Wallachia, Arabia, and Egypt. For all these reasons, Mahmoud II is still a disputed historical figure in present-day Turkey. Finally, with the death of Mahmoud II on July 1, 1839, we have reached the Sultan who ruled during the presidency of Harrison, when Mahmoud's son, Abdul Mased, came to power. Although a fragile child, Abdul Mased would become one of the more prominent sultans during the whole history of the empire, mainly for the issuing of the Gulan Imperial Rescript named after the Rose Garden where it was proclaimed in November of 1839. This rescript would come to be known as the Tanzimat Reforms. The main body of the edict addressed basic principles and issues, the right of all subjects to life, property, and honor, regardless of their religion or sect, the tax farming systems, military conscription, the safety and security of all subjects in the empire, and the equality of all Ottoman subjects before the law, equal rights before the law, and a fair tax system that does not unjustly put the burden on the poor and favor the elite, sounds strangely familiar considering this is written and recorded seven days before the 2016 U.S. presidential election, and the same two issues are still at the forefront. Although both Sultan Albumasid and his father came from a strict Sunni Muslim background and moving the empire towards a more just system fell in line with their core beliefs. All the events I have brought up so far in my summary of the empire at this time led to these reforms coming about. To westernize the military, the empire needed cash, which its antiquated tax farming system was failing to deliver. Without having a centralized administration of taxes, the divine port was unable to prevent corruption and unable to ensure all those who were responsible for taxes were indeed paying their share. So from now on, all taxes were to be combined under a single title and the people were to be taxed accordingly. 
tax farms were abolished, and instead a new system was established. However, after three years, the old systems were re-established, proving the central government had little power to enforce the reforms. Equal rights under law is something that most of us believe is an essential understanding between a government and its citizen base, and for the first time in its history, the Ottoman Empire was attempting this. But let's go back to how the events I have already discussed show the motivation for this beyond the obvious. Capitulations, or arrangements between the Ottomans and Christian states, where traitors entering the Ottoman Empire were exempt from local prosecution, local taxation, local conscription, and the searching of their domicile, had been around for almost 400 years. But once the military dominance of the empire had eroded, the Christian powers were able to take advantage of these agreements. This culminated in the Treaty of Kuchek-Kmaja, where the Russians secured the defense of all the Orthodox community in the empire. The Tanzimat reforms was the first attempt of the Sultan to re-secure authority over the entirety of his subjects and his lands. I hope this gives you an idea of the state of the Ottoman Empire at the time of Harrison. The 50 years building up to his presidency will probably take me months to cover in my podcast, and it's hard to condense in such a brief summary. But I hope you see the difficulty in labeling the empire in a state of decline at this time. I have shown you their great territorial losses in Europe, the Caucasus, and in the Middle East, but also showed how they were working towards a modern, just society, no matter what the motivation. The ideas put forth in both the American and French revolutions, combined with Orthodox Islamic beliefs, came together when the Sultan declared the Tanzimat reforms to the Ottoman people and the leaders of the Christian West and conceded a degree of his absolute power in order for these reforms to be actualized. Let's just say, the Ottomans were standing firmly at the edge of a cliff, with plenty of folks hovering over them, anxious to give them just a little push. Thanks again to Jerry, and if you like this bit about the Ottomans, come check out my podcast, The History of the Ottoman Empire, where you can visit happier times with the rise to their greatness. Thank you, Lynn, for giving us an understanding of the nation that David Porter would find upon setting sail for Istanbul. As was the case with the Ottomans, so too would Porter's road to 1841 be a struggle. Upon his return to the U.S. in 1829, Porter would seek salvation from the new president, Andrew Jackson. Jackson first offered to reinstate him in the Navy, which Porter refused. Then he offered to make him naval agent at Gibraltar or U.S. Marshal for the District of Columbia. No and no. Porter replied. The administration continued. Governor of the Naval Asylum? No. Consul in Tripoli? No. Consul General to the Barbary States? No. Wait, hang on. What was that one again? No. But we're getting warmer. Finally, in April 1831, David Porter was appointed U.S. Charge d'Affaires to the Ottoman Empire. It should be explained that, in terms of diplomatic rankings, a charge d'affaires was the lower level rank below the then highest level in the U.S. service, that of a minister. It wasn't until 1893 that Congress created the rank of ambassador. Porter was finally elevated to the rank of minister resident in March 1839. Through four presidential administrations, Porter would serve from his home at San Stefano, 12 miles from Istanbul, called the Palace. 
His work habits were far from the best, as noted by the editor of Daniel Webster's papers, who describes how, quote, Porter inundated the Department of State with a constant stream of messy and improperly numbered dispatches, sending approximately 600 with voluminous enclosures in 12 years. The Commodore was so prolix that in 1841, Secretary Webster bluntly instructed him to write, quote, less frequently. It would be during Porter's tenure that a shift occurred in American diplomatic precedent relating to a dispute between American missionaries and the Maronite Patriarch in Syria. The Patriarch asked the Sultan for the expulsion of the missionaries, and Porter, citing the terms of the Turkish-American Treaty of 1830, asserted that it was out of his powers to intercede in the matter. However, Secretary of State Webster, under pressure back home, sent orders to Porter, quote, to extend to missionaries the same attention and protection granted to merchants, giving him much greater latitude and, ultimately, allowing the missionaries to remain in Syria. During his tenure in the Ottoman Empire, Porter corresponded with James K. Paulding with letters describing the sights and sounds of the empire as he observed them, and Paulding had them published in 1835 in what is described by Porter's biographer as, quote, a reasonably interesting, thorough, and readable guidebook. Porter's tenure is noted as being a relatively peaceful one, as, quote, there was little to royal Turkish-American relations. He did work successfully to gain new trading privileges from the empire, following Great Britain gaining similar conditions in 1839. Overall, Porter wrote of his, quote, perfect contentment with the office. Porter would die in office on March 3, 1843, and his body would be returned to the United States for burial. I feel it only fitting to end this episode of the tumultuous life of Porter with a more enlightened quote from him. Even his biographer noted his general, quote, racist and nationalistic intolerance throughout his life. But something about his time in the Ottoman Empire seems to have changed him, as he wrote, quote, I've been a traveler all my life and am personally familiar with the people of every quarter of the globe, black, white, tawny, and copper-colored. If you wish me to sum up the result of all my wanderings, experience, reflections, enjoyments, and sufferings, here it is in a few words. I have found that there is not that vast disparity of wisdom, intelligence, and virtue between the different nations of the earth which the vanity of every people imagines. I found everywhere the faculties of the human mind and the virtues of the human heart best adapted to the attainment of happiness in the situation in which providence hath placed us. Special thanks again to Lynn Perkins for providing an insight into the Ottoman Empire. If you'd like to learn more about this mighty empire from the beginning, I highly recommend that you check out Lynn's podcast, The History of the Ottoman Empire. I will be posting a link to it on my blog, whhpodcast.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, as well as the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, all one word. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in to our next episode, in which we return to Harrison's life to look at some of his own personal struggles leading up to the presidency. Till then, as they say in Turkey, Gwele Gwele. <laughs>